This is Interband Radio. Honest questions, biblical answers, and proof that anyone with a mic can have their own podcast. All right, welcome back to Interman Radio. This week we are tackling, well, we're tackling a pretty big subject, Mark, but I think, uh, I think we're up for it. Well, at least uh, we're foolhardy enough to try. All right, so in, in, we're in an apologetics series. What we're really trying to do is to answer some common questions that are brought up to Christians. And these are questions that can, Christians might be asking themselves or our friends could be asking us, and it's uh, good to have answers. So one of the things that we asked uh, two episodes ago was, what about pain and suffering? You know, you say there's a God, there's a loving God, all-powerful. Sure, right, right. How can he allow pain and suffering? So we t- if you haven't listened to that, you definitely want to. And that really ties nicely into the issue, or it's connected to the issue of evil. Evil. Yeah. So if there is an all-powerful God, A, how can there also be evil, and why would he allow it? This week, we're going to jump right into, we're going to get to the to the nub of it, down to the nitty-gritty of, um, if there is a God... Who created him? That sounds like a reasonable question. Yeah, I mean, because I remember as a kid thinking this too, you know, maybe I was weird. Did you ever think about that kind of stuff as a kid, Mark? You know, I think I went the other way. My, Did you? My, yeah, I, I was trying to figure out how long eternity was oh. on, on the on the backside. But Interesting. Same okay. problem, you know, yeah, that yeah. goes tilt after a while. <laughs> so what created God? And that's a question that's a legit question. And so here we go. Um, there are a couple ways to look at how things are ordered in the universe. One really is to say, you know, everything that exists now is the result of natural causes. And so, uh, like, for instance, I'm holding a mouse in my hand, mm-hmm. and it says here, it says Logi, which I'm pretty sure is short for Logitech, Okay, I would think. And so we could say, well, how did this mouse come to be? And, <laughs> well, Logitech made it. Okay. Yep. But then you could say, well, what before? How did that happen? Where'd Logitech come from? <laughs> right. Or, well, yeah, where'd yeah. The, where'd, made it from what? Right. And where did the where did those materials come from? You comes down to petroleum. Well, sure. Where did petroleum come from? Dinosaurs. Okay. Where did dinosaurs <laughs> come from? Uh, other dinosaurs. Sure. So you go all the way back. <laughs> you are so difficult. Yeah. You go all the way back to the beginning, and, and really you come back to a question of, well, where did that come from? Yeah. Yep. And so so that is a that is an issue that a naturalist has. Where did all this stuff come from? That first domino that started the domino effect of cause and effect, where did that first material come from? And where did life first come from? So that's a problem that a naturalist has when in trying to explain our existence. That same problem, though, gets, uh, get, tries to be applied to God. Well, if you say there's a God who created everything, where did he come from? Is, that a fair, is it fair to ask that question of God's existence, Mark? Well, the naturalist recognizes that he has that problem. And so... What he does is he tries to he tries to land that problem on his on his on his counterparts of faith, people who believe in God and say you have to solve this problem because you have to have this problem also. There's a prominent evolutionist who who was kind of making a, a mockery of the issue when he said, well, okay, so where did everything come from? And then he he plays the 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 faith part. He says, well, God created everything, 
And so then he asks of his, of his hypothetical opponent, he says, well, who created God? And so he says, well, then they must need a bigger God to create that God. And who created, and so yeah. on and so on and so forth. And what they're trying to do is, is really foist their problem of naturalism onto faith and expect, uh, and expect an answer. In the first place, they recognize this is a problem. Even though they try and poo-poo it away, this is still a very effective argument. There has to be, in a cause-and-effect system, a first or primary cause. Whatever that cause is must be outside the system. It has to be something which is not natural in the sense that it is a part of that system. It has to be supernatural, and it has acted on that system. Science doesn't have an answer for that because... Science is committed, and when we say science, we mean how science is, is applied currently. Science is committed to the idea that everything is an effect of a previous cause. And so they would like to make the universe that which is self-existent, to make it itself that first cause. But that still doesn't answer questions about where do matter, energy, and the laws that govern them arise from? Where does that stuff Where's its beginning? Where's its origin? And they don't have any answer for that. The Big Bang just pushes it back one more step. And we can ask the naturalist, because it is his problem to answer, what caused the Big Bang? Where did that come from? And eventually, they have to just raise their hands and, and admit that they don't know. There is no understanding of where that could have come from. Where does that, from where does, from what cause do these effects stem? But that's not a problem for religion. And we're not taking the easy way out here because the scriptures actually address this problem. In Psalm 106, verse 48, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. The scriptures don't, don't try and avoid the issue of first cause. The scriptures embrace the issue of first cause. Right. And say that God is from everlasting even to everlasting. He's without beginning. He's without end. He is that which is self-existent. And he is therefore the primary cause from which everything else has been created. So, so we have that answer built into theology and the naturalist has simply limited the scope of his investigation so as he is not at liberty to see that first cause. Because in the naturalist system, that first cause would also have to have been created by something else. Yeah, there can't be a first cause. Right. Even though there is no such thing one. as a first Right. Yeah. Boy, that's difficult. It, it's a conundrum. And yeah. no wonder they... they you know, that really is a, is, a major, is a major problem. But so even in God's name, he says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am who I am. God describes himself. He says, my name is I am. He says, I, not that I was or I used to be or I am now or I will be later. He says, I'm all of those things from everlasting to everlasting. I am. I'm that which is self-existent, a title that Jesus appropriated for himself in John chapter 8 and verse 58. But they might ask the question, well, and atheists do, if there is a God, why can't we measure him? Does that, that means God is unscientific. Okay, so wait a minute, wait a minute. If there is, a, okay, connect the dot from where you were at just a second ago to there. If there is a God, why can't we measure him? If he's the first cause, if, if he's the beginning of this system, then shouldn't we be able 
to recreate that? Shouldn't we be able to ah. see God in action? Because science, the scientific method involves recreating and testing and, and all. Okay, I sure. see what you mean. Yeah, if, if, if we're going to claim that something is scientifically true, right. then you'd have to be able to test that in your laboratory. Uh, in a Petri dish or whatever. And, right. Okay, got it. And if you get the same results, then you might mm-hmm. say, okay, well, that seems to make sense to me, and I, I think I agree with your findings. And then we'd send it to somebody else, and he'd agree with our findings. And right. then we'd send it to another friend of ours who would also confirm it. And then we'd you know, we'd put a scientific community together, and we'd write grants, and we'd get money. And yes. that's how we would support ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, sounds, that sounds great, actually. Yeah. Actually, I'm going we... into climatology. <laughs> Let's start with the desired, desired end result first. Good idea. <laughs> and then we'll work backwards to prove it because that's where the money's at. That's the first cause. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's funny. <clears throat> but we have a problem if we try and say that everything must be subject to that means of investigation. Because there are things that we know to be true which, can be, which cannot necessarily be recreated. Things like historical events. Or people. People like, okay, historical events can't be recreated. Okay, I'm with you. So... So, George Washington, we all think he existed because we read about it. Pretty sure. Pretty sure. He's, he's supposedly the father of America, so America. We've, so, we've, <laughs> so, so we've been told. Okay, but scientifically speaking, I can't recreate George Washington. You cannot. So, therefore, I cannot prove he existed. So, so therefore, the idea of him existing is irrational. Is that kind of where you're going? So there is no George Washington. There is no George Washington that's, that's because I can't prove it. Not that way. I and, see. And if if we're going to limit the scope of what we know to only what we can recreate, to only what we can measure and test in that sense, in a in an experiment type of of, of situation, if if that's going to be the limit of a scope of our investigation, then there's a lot that we cannot know. So. I, I, it sounds like what's happening here is a misunderstanding of what science can and cannot do for us. Because science cannot be the, the it, it cannot be the entire way that we know what's true. There are things that we can know that are, there are things that are true that cannot be proved or disproved by science. There's knowledge uh, out there that is out of the ability to be tested and recreated. So therefore, since science cannot prove or disprove those things, does that mean those things don't exist? Does it mean they're not true? Like here, here would be a question for you: uh, for for the naturalist, what caused inanimate objects to become animate? In other words, what caused unliving things, carbon yeah. atoms, to become living things? Well, there's really no good answer for that, and we've haven't been able to recreate that. We haven't been able to. You know, scientific experiments have been done to try to take this, you know, primordial soup and put some electricity to it, and voila, you've got life. Well, it didn't work, and so therefore, since you can't recreate that, does that mean that does that prove that there isn't anything alive right now? You know, we see there are living things, even though we can't prove how they got here. Yeah, that's true, and that is an issue for science. But that's what science is supposed to do: is supposed to investigate the natural world based on the assumption that it is rationally ordered and it continues consistently. But it seems to have limitations. It does. And so what we have to do is we have to broaden what 
what the scope of the word science is. If, if science is only what I can reproduce, if science is only what I can, can test for in that sense, um, you know, then I'm left without George Washington. <clears throat> but if we broaden our, our view of what science is, science should be a search for what is true. Right. You know? and, and can we know that George Washington existed? We, we can't recreate him, um, but we certainly can, can look at the evidence available to us and make an assumption, I shouldn't say assumption, make an inference mm -hmm. based on that evidence and, and in that belief have a degree of confidence that we have understood what is true. So that evidence would include things like I, I can look at um, letters that he supposedly wrote. I can right. see those. I can I can look at uh, I can read letters that others wrote about him. Yep. I can yep. I can see uh, you know if if supposedly George Washington was in this battle or that battle. I can go to Yorktown and I can see those places for myself. Yeah. So so that really. There's two things we have to define. We have to define what science is, and science really is a search for truth, a search for knowledge right. about the natural world. But faith is a search for knowledge. Faith is a belief that is arrived at in precisely the same way. Hmm. So, you know, faith is a, is, a, is a belief that's based on evidence, but it's about something that we have not seen. So famously... Hebrews 11 says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Mm. Well, where did that conviction come from? And the problem is, is twofold. One, a lot of the responsibility for this falls on the religious community because they have made faith into something which it is not. They've made it into Feelings. some kind of experiential more yeah. sort of, I wish it were, I hope it is. Uh, you know, or at the worst, self-delusion. And that's not what faith is. The scripture says that faith is an inference. It's a reasoned conclusion about the facts that are available. So based on this evidence, I can infer this or this or this based on what God has done in the past, based on this. And I can draw a conclusion about that. And that conclusion is faith. But the scientific world looks at that as, you're nuts, because none of you guys can agree. Hey, Mark, speaking of <laughs> being nuts, if you're tired of moths, rust, and thieves chipping away at your net worth, you need to consider the real asset that has been a safe haven against insects, metallurgy, and robbers since the Old Testament. Barnes Investment leads the industry in precious metals retirement. Their CEO, Big R, has built his business and reputation on helping people in the here and now. Physical gold is the treasure you can lay up in your mattress, under your garden, or in your chest freezer. Don't lose another 40% of your portfolio in another market crash. Call today for a free, no obligation guide the big banks don't want you to know about. They don't want you to find out about this investment or whether or not it's right for you. Because nothing says, I trust God, like holding physical gold in the palm of your hand. So call Big R Barnes today at 800-A-Bit-More or find them on the web at TakeItWithYou.com. I'm going to have to call them today. <laughs> you know, and they paid for that ad up front, Mark, with Bitcoin. <laughs> very, very smart, very smart. <clears throat> the scientific world looks at the, uh, at the religious world and scoffs at them because... What they claim to believe, they believe without evidence. And it commonly is a criticism of, uh, of 
the evolutionary crowd, that the faith crowd is inconsistent, that they have, they have no basis for their beliefs, and most of the time, I agree with them. Absolutely. What, what's typically called the Christian world, uh, I, so many people have no idea why we believe what we believe. Yeah. We have no basis for it other than, you know, I had a, a really meaningful worship experience on Sunday, yep. or I saw some kind of miracle supposedly happen, or mm-hmm. I've got this feeling of the Holy Spirit working through me. Folks who are scientifically oriented or who come from a naturalistic perspective look at that and say, "You guys are nuts." And so do I. Yeah, absolutely. You guys are nuts. That that's absolutely crazy. You, they're just believing based on a desire to believe. Yes. Or or what they think they might gain from it in the yeah that's self delusion. So the problem is they've misunderstood what faith is. The Bible describes faith as what we talked about as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. But the Bible goes a step further and actually says, you know, it makes the claim that it gives the objective verification to draw that inference. So here's an example. In Isaiah 45, verse 21, God kind of challenges them. He says, declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior, there is none except me. In chapter 46, verse 10, he says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. You can find more examples of that, but I think those are sufficient to make the point. God doesn't say, believe in me just because. Just, you know, you really should. You know, I told you to. I told you so. Yeah, it's not like your father who just said, because I said so. Why do we have to do that, Dad? Because I said so. God says, believe in me, but here's the basis for making that claim. He says, why don't you check? Check, and in this case, he's specifically giving prophecy as an example. He says, you know, I told you what was going to happen from of old. He said, I told you this was going to take place. I've declared the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. God puts himself up for investigation. And he says, if you want to see evidence of my intervention, if you want to see evidence of my, of my, um, my providential hand, he says, here's a good place to look. I made this prophecy and I fulfilled it. I did this, I planned this, and I executed it. That's the same kind of evidence that we would look for to prove George Washington or anybody else, you know, or any historical event, the defeat of the Spanish Armada. We would look at the same kinds of evidence in order to draw the same kinds of conclusions. But because the issue or the the definition of faith has been abandoned by the religious world, they open themselves up to mockery by the secular world, which is correct. Yes, correct. But then it leaves them without any kind of of, uh, of support for their own belief system. They being Christianity, Christians. That's right. So, yeah, and there might be some folks who are listening to this now who would say, but wait a minute, when I'm reading Hebrews 11 and it says, faith, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things I cannot see. Mark, it sounds like we're contradicting faith because someone say well i just believe in i believe in god even though i can't see him i can't know him. i'm i'm convicted i'm assured of his existence we're not saying that you that 
uh, God is seeable in the sense that you don't have to be convicted of something you cannot see. We're not we're not disputing what Hebrews eleven says. In fact, Mark, how does the uh, how does the Israelites leaving Egypt and crossing into the land of promise? How does that give us a good illustration of true faith? Well, God does a couple of things with Israel when they leave Egypt. You'll recall that first He completely destroys the Egyptian army, right? And then after ten plagues, and and then He parts the Red Sea. And they escape through there and head on their way to Canaan. So they should have learned two things from that. One, that God can conquer, you know, any army, because Egypt was the power in the world at that time. And secondly, large bodies of water are not a problem for God. And they've got that on good authority since they were, you know, they were there. They were there. Right. So when they reach the border of Canaan, they are reluctant to go in. Um, primarily because it's filled with Canaanites. And because there's a, a smaller body of water to yeah, cross the called Jordan the Jordan River. River. So, But they should have been able to draw the conclusion based on the existing evidence that God, if he can handle the Egyptians, he can handle the Canaanites. And God, if he can part the Red Sea, he can deal with the Jordan River. So what's the problem? So they were asked to have faith in going into the land of Canaan, but it wasn't an unreasoned faith that wasn't based on evidence. Right. It was a reasoned faith based on what they what they had gone through or what their the previous generation had gone through. Yeah. So much of that plays into why Jesus is physically raised from the dead. Because, you know, then the scripture asks us to draw the conclusion, if God can raise Jesus from the dead, can he raise us from the dead? Okay, so a person listening to this right now um, who's thinking about the existence of God and whatnot, what you just said sounds like crazy talk. So let's put that back for just a second. We'll pull the crazy back. Pull the crazy, okay. Because, go back to the topic, what we're really saying, though, is that that Christianity, based on faith, does not mean a blind faith. It's not a faith that is without substantial reason to believe. It's not without evidence. Right. Yeah, faith without evidence is just wishful thinking. Right. And God has given us ample evidence to draw the inferences about who he is and that he's a rewarder of those who seek him and that and that those who follow God have a have a path laid out ahead of them. He's given us plenty of evidence to um to establish those facts about himself and our relationship to him. So <clears throat> those form the basis then of our faith then we act on that belief, and that's when faith becomes alive. Somebody else may say, well, okay, why? Well, I, I guess maybe, you know, maybe sure. there's a God. I don't know. Um, maybe maybe there isn't a God. There's a, I mean, a lot of people say there is. A lot of people say there isn't. Yeah. Uh, come see, come saw. I don't yeah. know, man. Maybe, you know what? I just, I don't think you can know. I, I don't think... I don't think you can figure it out. And there's so many people who claim that their version of God's the right one, and they've got their scriptures, yeah, and everything. How, how do I know you, anyway? Oh, there's so many competing voices in the religious marketplace. You can't make sense of that. They can't even make sense of that. How can I be expected to make sense of that? Yeah, that that's a legitimate Not question. completely unreasonable, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. So that leads to something called agnosticism which is atheism is the belief that there cannot be a god agnosticism says that you cannot know if god exists or if he doesn't now that's different than lazy agnosticism which is saying well i'm just unwilling to make a decision um true agnosticism says you, you 
is a belief that you cannot know if God exists, that he might be out there, but you no, you can't be sure, or he might not be there, but in either case, you, d- you don't know. Yeah, so if you're listening to this and you describe yourself as agnostic, um, an agnostic isn't someone who doesn't know. It's someone who believes that there's no way to know. You can't know. You, c- you can't know. There's no way to know. It's not, well, I, you know, I haven't really found, you know, and I'm not sure, and I don't know if I will find, and I don't really care. That's not agnosticism. <laughs> right, that's the lazy agnostic. Right. Yeah, <clears throat> who says, I'll decide later. Sure. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the true agnostic says you can't make that determination. Sometimes they say, well, I can't make that determination because God is beyond our understanding. I can't know because God... I can't right. know anything about God because he's so big and so supernatural. I can't know anything about God. So why even go down that path then? I mean, really? Well, I mean, I mean for an agnostic, that's that's the conclusion. It's like, well, you know, I can't know anything about him, so why why try? So how do you know God is unknowable? Whoa. I mean, if the agnostic makes that claim that God must be unknowable, then he knows something about God, doesn't he? He knows that he's unknowable. Is it kind of like there being absolutely no absolutes? Absolutely. Huh. It's just like that. It's just like that. <clears throat> but God God presents himself in the form of evidence in the natural world all the time. There's a, you know, um, there's a, a common line of, of reasoning called intelligent design, hmm. which which reasons that if there is a mouse yes there is a mouse creator okay that seems intelligent it, it does <laughs> right <clears throat> and we all recognize that to be universally true that if there's something like that which has been designed and which is the result of information and organization that there has to be a source that is equally if not more intelligent and organized in order to bring that about we see this in archaeology all the time. All the time. Because when when archaeologists are in a dig, they're able to discern between things that are naturally occurring. So like, here's here's a rock versus, hey, there's a stone wall that was built here. This has some structure. It has yes. some design. It has dimensions. It has some thought put into it. And the inference made of that discovery is that, hmm, humans, humans built this. Yeah. This isn't a naturally occurring phenomenon here. Yeah. So when you go to the museum and you see those things, they don't show you rocks. They show you artifacts. Right. And somehow mankind is able to make the distinction between those two things. They're able to see what is what has been intelligently designed, where information and organization intelligence have been actively added to this thing to bring about this result. And we have to conclude that that ultimately comes from God. So we can see it's the result of human intervention, and they see that with no trouble. Right. But where does where does human intelligence arise from? No place in the natural world does information or intelligence arise naturally. There are there are um, there are events. There are there are you know causes and effects. But you don't ever add in a naturalistic system information into that system unless it's from an outside source. And that's really the crux of the intelligent design argument. So much like a computer system, I guess, is what you'd be, or or an algorithm, a Google algorithm, didn't create itself. It wasn't the result of, of naturally progressive, uh, random occurrences. Yeah. It, it, was, it, was, uh, it was created, programmed, and thought through. 
And so that's really what you're saying with regards to the entire system of life, really, is that that the information, which is infinitely more complex than any any search algorithm could yep. ever be, uh, that that it's it cannot be the the result of natural. Uh, random accidents. Uh, and so what you're saying is there is some intelligence behind that design. Yep. And and that really forms the basis for when we look at the natural world, we then can infer that God does exist. This is what faith is. Li- this is really what faith is at a base level in practice. We look at the natural world. We see that this is impossible to come about by spontaneous means. Therefore, there has to be a creator. And that's an objective way to infer the existence of God. There's a couple of great videos out there. If you have a, if you have the opportunity, you, you should sit down and, and, and watch them. Uh, one is called The Privileged Planet, and the other is Unlocking the Mysteries of Life. You kids will love them. They, they really are. I found them fascinating. I really enjoyed them. But it lays out this argument that there has to be an intelligent designer in order for the design we see in the world to exist. What we see biblically is that you know, God has begun with a plan, and then he executed that plan throughout the centuries. The prophets in the Old Testament, how they looked toward Jesus, the things that they said Jesus would do, what he would accomplish, where he would live, where he would go, uh, all of so much of what we read in the New Testament was prophesied hundreds of years, and it isn't, it isn't somebody's opinion. It's verifiably hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of years, in some cases over a thousand years before Jesus arrives, and that's provable evidence. Then we have to make and infer the belief about if how, how did these prophecies get there, and how do they know that Jesus yeah. is going to be that person? The creation of Christianity out of the ashes of Judaism. I mean, how does the Scripture know that that's going to come about? How does how does it know that God is going to use, or that that's the inference, how does it know that that out of Judaism, that system, a totally new religion would be born called Christianity that appeals to Judaism for its factual basis? How, how does it know that? There's only one conclusion that can be drawn, and that is there is a God. And when we're talking with people about whether or not God is scientific, whether or not th- there is a God, can there be a God? Can we know that there's a God? Our appeal has to be based on the same thing. It has to be based on evidence, not our own wishful thinking, but on the evidence that's given to us in the scriptures and in the natural world. And on that basis, we infer our results. And we'll see you next time on, on Inner Man, Man Radio. Hey, if you find Inner Man Radio helpful, be sure to share it with your friends. You can find us on Facebook or all the episodes at innermanradio.org, or download the app where you can text episodes directly to your friends.